morning we spoke about uh, the return of the King. And tonight I want to speak with you about the great hope that we have in Jesus of the resurrection of the dead. Let me pray with you uh, before we open up God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we praise you because by your great power you raised Jesus, your Son, from the dead. And we praise you because his resurrection gives us hope that we too will be raised and share life with him, life with you for eternity. And we pray tonight as we read your word together that you would speak to us. Give us uh, trust in your word and hope in your son. And we pray that you do that in us tonight by your spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I've been enjoying getting to know you a little bit today. I don't think I've got yet to say hello to everyone, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm hoping to say at least hello to everyone by the end of the weekend. It's been great to have a chat with a few of you over free time this afternoon. Uh, and so I feel like perhaps tonight I can ask you this question. It's a little bit of a personal question, but I'm not going to ask you to answer in public. You just answer to yourself. The question is this. If you could change one thing about your body, what would it be? For some of us, the answer is probably more obvious than others. Now, you might think that there's a few obvious things you can see that I'd like to change about my body. The first one, you probably haven't noticed, but I have a mongy toe. My, my second smallest toe just doesn't sit in the right spot, and I'd like to have it put in the right spot. More serious than that is I love to have eyes that work. When I take these off, I can't even tell how many fingers I'm holding up, and it's my hand. <laughs> but probably the thing I'd love to change the most would, is to do with my follicle growth on the top of my head. We've got some good friends that we spend time with a lot, and last summer their son, who's four years old, uh, was going swimming with us at the swimming pool and I had my shirt off of course and he noticed that I've got quite a lot of hair on my chest and no chair, no hair on my head and he, he looked at me with new eyes as if for the first time and said, Murray, why did your hair fall off your head? <laughs> I think most of us have some kind of love-hate relationship with our bodies, don't we? We love them, we feed them, we care for them, and yet there are things about our bodies that we'd love to change. And so I think that's part of the reason why we love these TV shows about extreme makeovers and about the biggest losers, whether we in this room particularly love them, our culture loves them. We've got an obsession with the perfect body. We spend millions and millions of dollars a year as a society on cosmetics uh, and such like because of this obsession we have with the perfect body. But of course, extreme makeovers, no matter how extreme they are, are never going to be extreme enough because they don't go to the heart of the problem. The problem with our bodies, of course, is much deeper than just the fact that I've got a bit of extra flab here and a little bit too little hair on top and eyes that don't work. The problem is much deeper than that. It's the problem of sin and therefore of death. When I think about my bald head, it always makes me think about my grandpa who was a strong man, a builder. He lived through the Depression. He fought in the Second World War. He raised eight kids together with my grandma. Uh, he used to, he, my dad 
delights still in taking me around to the houses and the buildings that Pa built and showing me all of these wonderful places that Pa had a hand in building. And I hear stories about my granddad, about how strong he was, about how clever he was with his hands, about how good he was with the kids. But I only get to hear those stories because the Pa I knew had dementia and the Pa I knew was in a nursing home and the Pa I knew was very weak and the last time I saw my Pa, he was nothing but a corpse. And when you think about it like that, you realise that the problem with our bodies is, is not just a matter of a little bit of makeup. It's not just a matter of some laser surgery on my eyes or some follicular treatment for my hair. The problem with our bodies is so much deeper, so much greater. It's the problem of sin, which leads to death. We need much more than an extreme makeover. We need an act of new creation. We need resurrection. And the great news that we're going to look at tonight in these Bible passages is that that is exactly what God promises in Jesus. Look first at this Old Testament passage from Ezekiel. Because the ancient Israelites knew a great deal about the problem of sin and the way that it leads to death. They knew that not just as individuals but as a nation. Because as we saw this morning, when they sinned and turned against God, God took his presence away from the temple and allowed the Babylonians to come in and to destroy the temple and to take them off as exiles to a foreign land. They knew the problem of sin and death, not just on a personal level, but on a national level, because as they were taken away from the land to Babylon, that was like a national death. They'd been cast out of the presence of the God who made them and the God who saved them and the God who had come to dwell amongst them in the tabernacle and the temple, and they were put under the thumb of a foreign oppressor, the Babylonians. It was like they were dead, cut off from life in the land, cut off from... God, who made them and loved them and saved them. And it was into that context that Ezekiel was given this word to speak. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me up by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. You've got to imagine this vision that Ezekiel has given here. Imagine yourself walking with the prophet down into a valley or being set down in the middle of a valley by the Spirit of the Lord and looking around and as far as your eye can see, all you can see are bones littering the ground. All the way up the other end of the valley, all the way up the sides and behind you, bones. When you walk, you crunch on the bones because all you can see in this valley is bones, human bones. He led me all around them and there were very many lying in the valley. And they were very dry. These bones belong to people who've been dead for a long time. And he said to me, mortal, can these bones live? Uh, I think most of us would have said at that point, no way. Not a chance. Ezekiel answers very wisely, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, just like breath entered Adam in the garden and the man who was formed out of the dust became a living being back there in Genesis. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
So I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. But imagine this scene. There's, how many bones are there? Hundreds and thousands perhaps filling this uh, valley. Ezekiel says very many of them there in verse 2. And as he speaks the word of the Lord to them, they start to rise up. What a vision. And I looked and there were sinews on them. And flesh came upon them. And skin had covered them. And you think, here it is, what a miracle. And yet, these are still corpses. No longer bones, but still lifeless bodies. There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up. We're dead, we're in exile, we're lost, we're in Babylon. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit it's actually the same word as has been translated the whole way through as breath. I will put my breath, my spirit, within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. What a remarkable vision of resurrection, of new creation. I hope you picked up the echoes there of Adam in the garden. Uh, a lifeless dust formed into a body into which God breathed the breath of life. But this time it's not just one man. It's an entire nation of bones that have been brought to life. A new creation. A resurrection. And if you ask yourself, when was this vision, this prophetic vision that God gave to Ezekiel fulfilled, And you scratch your head and you think, well, they, they did come back from the land, from Babylon to the land of Israel. There was a return from the exile, and yet those who died in Babylon stayed there. Their graves are there to this day. And so some of the house of Israel experienced a resurrection of sorts. They, they came back to the land, they lived again in God's promised land, and yet what about those who died? What about this promise that I will bring you up from your graves and bring you back to the land of Israel? And that's when you start to think, well, several hundred years later, the Jews were again in an, another kind of exile. They weren't cast out of their land, but they were under the thumb of a foreign oppressor in their homeland, under the Roman army who had come in and taken control. And there was one Jew in particular at that time who experienced the wrath of that foreign oppressor, who experienced exile in his own person, who was abandoned by God to death, and whom God raised up. 
And we read that story in Luke 24. Again, you've got to imagine yourself in this scene. On the first day of the week, this is after Jesus' crucifixion, at early dawn, I think perhaps there's mist, it's April in Jerusalem, it's still quite cold, the light is just coming up over the horizon over the Judean desert. They came to the tomb, the women, taking the spices that they had prepared. They bought these spices, they're not cheap, in order to prepare the body for burial. Because what the Jews did was anoint the body, uh, wrap it up in linen cloths with spices, partly to uh, stop the stench, and wait for the body to decompose, and that would take quite a while. And then they would come back again a few months later and collect the bones out of the tomb and put them in an ossuary, a bone box. And so this is the first stage of that process of showing honour to their beloved dead, to Jesus. And they brought the spices in order to prepare the body. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. It's an empty tomb. It's the right tomb, but it's an empty tomb. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and, all, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women who were with them, who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They would, wouldn't they? Imagine yourself in the position of the apostles. You've been following Jesus around, listening to his teaching, expecting him to redeem Israel for three years. And then he's crucified by the Romans and laid in a cold stone tomb. And then the women come back hysterical, it seems, out of their minds, telling strange stories, idle tales, but Peter got it, and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. What a sight. Imagine yourself there. It doesn't tell us. I'm only guessing, but I imagine Peter went in and and lifted up the cloths and saw on them the stains from Jesus' blood. Cloths that are now empty, cloths that had bound the body, and the body is missing, and the tomb is empty. And he went home, amazed at what had happened. A bit later the same day, while they were talking about this, the disciples this is, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified, as you would be, and thought that they were seeing a ghost. There were beliefs in the afterlife in the ancient world, beliefs uh, in a shadowy existence. That's what the Greeks thought, that you die and go to Hades. And they didn't know much about this life after death, but they knew it was some kind of shadowy existence. There are stories in Greek mythology about this. The Jews believed in resurrection, but, but not a resurrection three days after you die. A resurrection at the end. A resurrection on the last day. 
when God would come in judgment, that kind of resurrection, not this kind of resurrection ahead of time, only three days after you've died, by himself, without the rest. And so the only interpretation they can put on this is that this must be a ghost. This is some kind of apparition we've seen. And Jesus knows it. And he said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. The sure signs that this is the same Saviour who three days earlier they had seen dying on the cross. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while in their joy they were disbelieving. Isn't that a great description? (laughs) In their joy, what on earth is this? They were disbelieving. And still wondering, he said to them, just to make it really clear, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. The tomb was empty, the body was missing, and there was Jesus. They could see his hands and his feet. They could touch him, his flesh and his bones. They saw him eat Later on, John tells us they had breakfast with him on the beach. This was no experience that the disciples were having, some kind of vision. This was no ghost who had come back from the grave. This was a bodily resurrection. Jesus had gone into death and through death and out the other side into a new kind of embodied life. But what does it all mean? Sometimes we explain this as a, a, the most remarkable of Jesus' miracles. And it is a remarkable miracle. Sometimes we think about it as uh, the proof of Jesus' divinity. And it does point us strongly in that direction. <laughs> and yet we need to push further because the New Testament pushes us further in understanding what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for him and for us and for the world. Because this bodily resurrection achieved something. It changed something. In fact, it changed the world. It was an event in real time and space, in real history. If you've been there with a video camera, which you know, there's an acronym there, you'd have to travel back in time or something. But if you'd been there with a video camera, you could have taped it. If you'd been there with the apostles, you could have touched his hands and his side and seen him eat the fish. This was a real event in real time and space that really changed the world. Now you might think, but aren't there other resurrections in the Bible? Uh, How is this one any different? Uh, Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. The story is told in John chapter 11. There are stories about some of the prophets. Elisha raising the dead. Jesus raised the widow's son at Nain in Luke chapter 7. So is this resurrection any different? And if so, how is it different? Well, I've tried to capture that for you in a diagram there based on what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, he says, being raised from the dead, will never die again. There's the difference. Death no longer has dominion over him. You see, the diagram on the left there, that's a Lazarus kind of resurrection. Remember the story of Lazarus? He was dead and after four days Jesus comes to the tomb and Jesus speaks into the tomb, come out. 
and the dead man comes out still wrapped in the linen cloths and they unbind him and they give him back to his mother and she rejoices of course and we're not told what happens after that to Lazarus but we can be certain that Lazarus continued to live for a while and then he got sick and he annoyed his mother and he had fights with his sisters or whatever it is I don't know the details, they're not told but he lived a kind of resurrected life but then he died you see, his resurrection he went into death and Jesus called him back out of death into the same kind of life the kind of life under the rule of sin and death the kind of life where you get sick and where you sin and where you die and so Lazarus died again as did the widow's son at Nain, as did the boy raised by Elisha. But Jesus went into death, the diagram on the right, and through death and out the other side into a whole new kind of life, a kind of life we've never seen before, a kind of life that no one has ever lived before. His resurrection changed the way things are in the world. And it's his resurrection that gives us certain hope that we too will be raised into that same kind of life if our faith is in him. That's got two implications for us at least over the page. The first one is, and I'm not going to spend very much time on this, but a couple of times Paul speaks about the fact that when we put our trust in Jesus, uh, as we've seen so wonderfully this afternoon, uh, symbolised in the baptism. We die to our old selves and we begin a new life. And you can talk about that as, as a kind of resurrection. Look at Colossians 3, verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, he's speaking to people who are reading this letter. People who are still alive in, well, what looks like this same kind of life and yet something dramatic has happened to them. Their old life has finished and they've begun a new life. It's like they've entered into the resurrection and yet they're still in this same body. And so even though they've been raised up with Christ, they still have to be commanded to seek the things that are above. And further down in verse 5, they still have to be commanded to put to death sin in their life. And they still have to be commanded in verse 12 to love each other because they've been raised with a kind of spiritual resurrection but they're still living in weak bodies, still living in a world of sin. It's not the same kind of resurrection yet as Jesus experienced when he went into death and through death and out the other side. And yet, it is a new life. And that's what we have now in Christ. But there's more than that. Because that new life points forward to the resurrection life that God promises us beyond the grave. And this is where I want to spend some more time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage that was read for us, where Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I want you to notice three things here about the past and the present and the future. 
First, something has happened here in the past, as Paul is writing. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the story we've just read in Luke 24. And he calls Jesus there the first fruits in verse 20, and again in verse 23. In calling Jesus the first fruits, he's saying Jesus is the beginning of a great harvest to come. When I was a kid, uh, we used to go every summer, January, to my great uncle's farm. It was a peach farm. Absolute dream for a kid. We'd spend the afternoon, well, sometimes picking peaches and sometimes having peach fights. <laughs> We'd go there often in early December just to see how things were going. And you'd see all of these peaches on the tree and all of them green. And you'd go back a couple of weeks later, a bit later in December, and you'd see, ah, there's the first one. Uh, and if you were lucky, it was your turn that year because you had to share it around. You get to climb up on the stepladder and pick the first peach of the season. And you get to take it down and wash it off and take a bite and taste that delicious, juicy peach and feel the drips running down your chin. And as you do that, you'd know that this peach was at the moment on its own. One peach, just the first fruits. But you'd know that when you came back later in January, you'd be throwing peaches around because there were too many of them to eat. And you'd be taking peaches home and Grandma would be making peach conserves and peach jam and there'd be frozen peaches and peach jellies and peaches all over the place. You'd be giving away boxes of peaches to friends because the harvest had come. And you'd know that already in December because you were tasting the first fruits. And Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits of the great harvest. He's the one who's been raised from the dead ahead of the rest. And his resurrection is the sign and the promise, the guarantee and the beginning of the great harvest that is coming when the dead will be raised. Look at it, verse 23. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, at his coming, those who belong to him will share in that same kind of resurrected life. So in the past, we've got Jesus' resurrection, the first fruits. In the present, therefore, Jesus now rules. Verse 25. For he must reign. God has raised him up by his resurrection and seated him at the Father's right hand, and he must reign there at the right hand of the Father until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what's the last enemy to be destroyed? Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, Jesus has been raised up as the first fruits. He now sits at God's right hand, reigning over all things, subduing his enemies until, verse 23, at his coming, by his Kingly arrival is the word. At his presence, his parousia, when he comes as king, then the dead will be raised and death will give up its captives and death will be defeated because Jesus has come to raise the dead. It's important to note here that death is spoken of as an enemy. Did you see that in verse 26? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I don't know if you've heard this, but often uh, in our culture we speak about death as a friend, as a doorway to the next life. 
Uh, I experienced this very powerfully recently uh, when I had the privilege of conducting a funeral for a lady in our church who had died prematurely in her 40s. Uh, she had a very difficult life. Uh, she had a mental disability and all sorts of physical disabilities as well. And the Lord took her at age 42 or 43. She was in Christ. She was a believer. And many people said to me as uh, I was preparing for the funeral that, that this is a mercy, this is a relief. Uh, death has been a friend to her. And I, part of me agreed and agreed very strongly. It was a mercy. It was a relief for her and for her family who had been struggling for so many years looking after her. And so there is a truth in that. And yet, at a deeper level, she was never designed to die. The things from which she has now released the mental disability, they're not meant to be in this world. That's not the way God created things. God created the world good and very good. And so her suffering, her disability and her death are enemies. They're not the way the world is meant to be. They're enemies not just of us, but enemies of God, because this is his world, and he made it good. And now it's not the way it's meant to be because of sin. And so there is a truth that, that death can sometimes be a relief. But at a deeper level, death remains an enemy. And enemies need to be defeated. And the great news is that in Jesus' resurrection, God has begun the defeat of the great enemy. And that when Jesus comes, that enemy will be finally put under his feet. And God will be all in all, as Paul says in verse 28 there. What I love about this, uh, what I love about this is you see that this is not just some partial victory for God. It's not just that God has created the world and then it's gone awry because of sin and he's managed to snatch a few souls out of the world, but all of the bodies uh, and the creation itself he's had to abandon and get rid of. No, this is the beginning of God's reclaiming of creation. He did it beginning with one man, Jesus. And in Jesus' resurrection body, what you see is there's one part of the created universe, Jesus' flesh and bones, which God has reclaimed and said, that's mine. I made it and I made it good. And God has raised it up and glorified it, taken it through death and out the other side. And that one part of the creation that God has reclaimed, that one man has gone ahead of the rest of us as the first fruits of the great harvest. Now at this point you might be asking, but what's this going to look like? <laughs> we've got that vision from Ezekiel. Uh, we've got the example of Jesus' resurrection. But what is it going to look like when the dead are raised? And particularly, what kind of bodies will we have? At that point. And if you're asking that question, you're asking exactly the same kind of questions that the Corinthians asked. And Paul addresses it over the page in verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul says, Fool. He says that because the Corinthians were asking that cynically. They actually didn't believe in the resurrection, they were denying the resurrection. And this is one of their questions designed to show how silly the whole idea of the resurrection is. And if you're asking from that point of view, then yes, it is a foolish question. But you can ask this question without that kind of cynicism. You can ask this question in faith. Uh, and on that level, it's a good question. And Paul gives us 
a good answer. Let me read through this with you and make a few points. The first thing Paul says is that when we are raised in our bodies, we will have the same body made complete. Look at verses 35 to 37, picking up uh, 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. You see what he's saying? That when you sow a grain of wheat into the ground and you water it and the sun does its work and however many months later, a plant starts coming up out of the ground. If you ask yourself the question, is this the same body as what I sowed into the ground? What's your answer? Well, yes and no. Yes, it is the same body. This plant has grown out of this seed. It, in fact, it's the seed brought to its natural completion. This is what the seed is designed to do. It's to grow into a plant. And so, yes, it's the same body made complete. But is it the same body? Well, because it's the same body made complete, it's now radically different. It's no longer a seed. It's a full-grown plant. And Paul says the resurrection body is like that. The same body made complete and therefore radically different. You see that in verse 39 to 41, where he says, Not all flesh is alike, but there's one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. His point here seems to be there's different kinds of body. And the body that is sown, the body that dies, well, it's the same body that is raised, but it's raised in completion, and that therefore it's a radically different kind of body, as different as a fish is from the stars, as different as birds are from the sun, as different as an earthly body is from a heavenly body. It's the same body made complete, and therefore radically different. And you're saying, okay, this... This still sounds pretty confusing. Give us some more detail, Paul. And Paul says, okay, here it is. 42 to 44. He gives us a series of contrasts. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, the body that is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. If you've got teenage kids or you remember what uh, being a teenager was like, you know what perishability is all about. Perishability is the cheese and tomato sandwich in the backpack that's been there for a week because it forgot to be taken out and put in the bin when it wasn't eaten for lunch. That's perishable. That's rotting. And Paul says the body that is sown, the bodies that we're in now, will perish. They rot. They break down. They die. Or they're burned. But what will be raised is imperishable. In the resurrection of the dead, there will be no more rotting. He says the body that is sown, verse 43, is sown in dishonour but it will be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. I told you about my pa, who was a strong man, a builder. But when I knew him, he couldn't even lift a spoon to feed himself. My pa, who had eight kids and clothed them and washed them and changed their nappies and raised them and trained them and disciplined them. But when I knew him, he couldn't clothe himself. That's dishonourable, isn't it? It's not the way it's meant to be. 
That's weakness. That's not the way it's meant to be. And the body that is sown is like that. But the body that is raised will be raised in glory and in power. The body that is sown, Paul says, if you jump down to verse, it's actually over the page, but verses 53 and 54, he says the body that is sown is immortal. It, sorry, is mortal, but the body that will be raised, verses 53 and 54, will be immortal. You see, mortality is the defining feature of human life since Adam, isn't it? They say there's only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And you might be able to get out of taxes if you're really, really clever or you move to Switzerland or something. But you'll never get out of death. The body that is sown is mortal, but the one that is raised will be immortal. There will be no more death. Our society tries to hide from that, don't we? We, we try to pretend that our bodies aren't mortal. And we hide people who are old and sick and dying away in hospitals and nursing homes. And, and there are many good things about those hospitals and nursing homes, of course. Uh, many good ways that we care for people when they're sick and dying. And yet the effect in our society is that we're, we don't witness much of it. We don't see much of it. And part of it, I think, can be we try to shut out the fact that that's where we're headed, the fact that we're going to die, because death is a shock, because we know that life is good and that death doesn't belong. And in the resurrection of Jesus, which will be shared with us when he comes, that death will be done away with. But how? How is God going to achieve this? Well, the clue is in verse 44, back on the page previous where Paul says, it's sown a physical body, but raised a spiritual body. Often this has been read as meaning it's sown a material body, a flesh and blood body, a body that you can touch and feel and see and taste, and it'll be raised as some kind of spiritual body, ephemeral thing that floats around on the clouds that doesn't have any real substance to it. But, but that's not what these words mean. Notice that it's a spiritual body. It's sown a physical body, it's raised a spiritual body. Paul uses the same adjective, uh, sorry to get a little bit technical for a second, but the same describing word, the adjective spiritual back in chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about the Corinthians as being spiritual and unspiritual now in their present bodies. So these descriptions, physical or spiritual, are not about the stuff that the body is made of, they're about the thing that is powering it. The physical body, is a, a better translation would be a soulish body, a body under human power, a body living apart from God. The spiritual body is the body empowered by God's spirit, God's spirit who is now already at work within us, renewing us from the inside out, who when we are raised will complete his work and make us new even in our bodies. You think of it like this, if you, if you jump 100 years into the future, and go to the, uh, the um, Tokyo car show or something like that, and they've got this wonderful new car that's been uh, written up in the press for weeks, and people are coming from all around the world to see it because it's this spectacular new car, and you turn up and you look at it, and you think, ah, oh, this looks pretty similar to all the other cars. What's so special about it, you ask the salesman? And he says, well, yes, it looks similar on the outside, but it's what's under the hood that's different. The engine in this thing just goes and goes and goes. 
and never wears out and doesn't need petrol or any other kind of fuel for that matter. Sure, it might look like the same kind of body, but it's powered by something different. And Paul is saying the resurrection body is like that. It will be a spiritual body, powered by God's Spirit when God's Spirit has done His work in us fully and completely so that we will live and not die. Just as Jesus went into death and through death and out the other side into a kind of existence which is free from death. And if you're still having trouble imagining all of that, what will it be like? Then God has given us the prototype in Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about in verses 45 to 49, where there's this series of contrasts between the first man and the second man, the first Adam and the second Adam, the man of dust and the man of heaven. And Paul is saying that Jesus is a new kind of human being. He's gone into death, through death, and out the other side in a new kind of human life. And his resurrection was a new start for humanity. And our resurrection will be like that. And so over the page, more quickly now. Paul finishes off this passage by celebrating the great victory that God will bring when Jesus comes. You see that in verse 57 where he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sin and death have not won, but God has won. And so Paul even puts it in the song, verses 54 and 55, when he says, When this body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written in the prophets will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This is a taunt. This is a song you sing to an enemy when you've defeated him. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? It's like, look at the scoreboard. You know that song from the, the rugby games? Look at the scoreboard. That's what you sing when you won, right? And this is the song that God is giving us to sing here. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Can we sing that song yet? Well, yes and no. Yes, because death has been defeated in Jesus. No, because we still feel the sting of death every time people we love get sick and die. But when Jesus comes and the dead are raised, then we'll all be singing this song with full voice. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Because death has been defeated in the great resurrection. I've tried to summarise that in a couple of ways for you here. First, using a statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our Confession of Faith in the Presbyterian Church, uh, which I love going back to every time I'm struggling with a question of doctrine, and it's full of gold. How's this? This is from chapter 32, verse uh, section 2. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. Uh, Paul says that. I didn't comment on that, but Paul says that very clearly there in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 57, that those who have not died will be transformed into this new kind of bodily life when Jesus comes. And all the dead shall be raised up, how's this, with the self-same bodies, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The self-same bodies, and yet radically transformed. Or maybe you can put it like this, God is more interested in renovation than in demolition. 
That's our God. We see it in Jesus. I've got a PS there about what happens when we die. What about going to heaven? I might save that up for later or for question time. Um, the simple answer is, as Paul says in Philippians 1.23 there, he desires to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So we can be confident that those who die in Christ are with him and that when we die, we will be with him, as Paul says there. My point tonight is just that that's not the main game. That's not the most exciting bit. That's a step on the journey to the real hope, which is the resurrection of our bodies when Jesus comes. How do you get ready for this great makeover? Well, I've got a couple of suggestions for you based on where Paul finishes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. You see what he says? Because your bodies will be raised up, use your bodies to serve the Lord. I think about it like this. These hands, these hands are the hands that I will serve God with for eternity. Not any other hands, these ones. Transformed, made new. Radically transformed, as different as a, a wheat plant is from a seed, and yet these hands are the hands I'm going to serve God with for eternity. So what am I doing with these hands now? What am I going to do with them tonight? What am I going to do with them in the morning? How do I use them in my work? How do I use them in the church? How do I use them in my family life? It's these hands that are going to serve God for eternity. So what am I doing with them now? It's these eyes... These eyes transformed, made new, praise God. These eyes with which, with which I will see God face to face. So where am I looking with them now? How dare I use these eyes to look at immorality? How dare I use these hands to hurt people? How dare I use this tongue which God created for his glory and which he will raise up to curse and to slander and to gossip because it's this tongue, not any other tongue, but this tongue that will praise God for eternity. So what am I doing with it now? And so as I close, I want to leave you with, this with that challenge. God is the creator and God in Jesus' resurrection has begun to redeem his creation. He didn't discard Jesus' body. He raised it up and made it new. And God is going to do exactly the same with our bodies when Jesus comes. So in the meantime, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because your labour in the Lord in this body with these hands and these feet and these eyes and this tongue is not in vain because even though this body will die, God will raise it up. Let's pray.